My name is Pradham Thakur and this is Embrace Your Lazy. This podcast will turn your dreams into reality by helping you realize that we are lazy and perfect human beings and by teaching you habits to use laziness to your advantage. Today on the show, we have Richard Nguyen. We talk about what stories mean, about first drafts, and trying to make it as a filmmaker. Now wait till the end for my lazy takeaway section where I'll give you the tips and tricks that you can take away from this interview. Please consider subscribing, writing a review, and letting me know what you think. Without further ado, here's Richard. I mean, that's a, that's always the thing I kind of envy about people who do whatever programs they do, like you taking a squealing class and stuff like that. It's not, it's not something you're learning that's going to be different than a self-education from books, right? Unless your professor is well-known industry or something like that, it's not like you're going to be getting advice that's really different from anybody else but having someone look over it that's used to this type of stuff is huge like Mm. it just saves you so much because especially in like writing i think it's like the biggest thing it Uh, it, it just saves you so much lag because he can say something like this isn't clear or cut this part out or this part's unfocused or like even that like even that simplicity is super helpful to say like this is unfocused like you don't even need to be a professor but like if you can say that it's super helpful right i agree it's it's really incredible and it is nice of course so an informed opinion is better than a non-informed opinion right um yeah, of course but that's the style i write i tend to write the bad part first um and it's, it's certainly one of my weaknesses right now um i tend to get carried away i overwrite and then i need uh to go through rounds of feedback and that's what really makes my work better uh, and that's how I'm comfortable working with. I'm comfortable working with other people who can tell me um, what they think about it. And that's sort of how I respond. Um, I, yeah, I, I, just, think, yeah. I think everyone needs that. I don't think anybody writes a great first draft of anything or makes a first cut that's amazing when you're starting out. Because right. you need like, you know, you need to know what the audiences are thinking. So, Oh, exactly. And it, I mean, it's interesting how some artists can go um, about things. I mean once they get enough experience they can build this sort of level of arrogance it feels like i mean um where they feel as though they don't need to listen to anyone else that like they they have a complete control over their material and that's good enough i mean um i, I was just i remember the hollywood reporter interview with tom hooper and ridley scott um they just had a bunch of directors around the table yeah and this is sort of somewhat unrelated but it's just about what you make your art for and i definitely am one to make art for other people um or like I, of course, it's deeply personal. It's about me and it's for me to express, but who who else is listening, right? It's other people that are listening. Um, and so Tom Hooper is like, yeah, I make movies for other people. And Ridley Scott's like, nah, I only make movies for myself. <laughs> Fuck people. <laughs> I'm just like, yo, this guy can say that because he's literally made like some of the greatest movies. Ridley Scott. Yeah. yeah. Wait, did I tell you about how he like, he listed his top five favorite sci-fi movies of all time. And the first two were alien and blade runner. (laughs) (laughs) That's classic. And it's just like, I I, I watched that. uh, I didn't watch the whole round table, but I watched part of that. And I thought that was really funny. Um, It was so funny because it's like, I mean, that's arrogant as fuck, but dude, you can, that's a godlike move. You you can say that you're allowed to, you know, Uh, in a way though, like for me, there's like, I feel like there's, a certain I understand what he's saying to a certain extent because I think for the first draft or when I start anything I'm always scratching my own itch 
And if I feel like I'm, I have to try to figure out um, what the audience kind of wants, then it's very difficult for me. It's like one of those um, things in startups where they say, find the market fit, right? But I'm uh-huh. like, in a way, I'm like terrible at that because uh, I think the best thing, the best way I create products or, you know, write or whatever is to create something that really scratches my itch and yeah. then figure out like, okay, how can I optimize this for an audience? But like ne- once you get to the level where you really like it or it scratches your itch, I think it's helpful. Like this whole podcast is just scratching my own itch. I'm not, it was, I'm really like, um, all right, David said he'd be here at 630. Okay. So maybe classic David. Like, David know, time. That is so classic David's. I was kind of wor- worried about that. That's why I was like trying to say 530. So yeah, that was a good idea. Say. I figured, yeah. Should... <laughs> but, but then he was just like, okay, I'll be there six and not a minute later. So I was like, okay, fine. That sounds <sighs> good. David, David. Oh, <laughs> God. Uh, but uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So like this podcast in many ways is just like me scratching my own itch. And then people were just like, oh, like that sounds like really interesting and helpful. So they're like, make it something that you, you know, do for other people as well. So I was like, okay. No, that, that's, I think, I think especially, you yeah, know, that, that's, that's resonate, re- resonating because I think every concept or idea comes from what I actually want to pursue, but then how I end up doing it, like when I consider how I want the scenes to be put together or what footage I have to keep in there, it's for the sake of like how, how this other people, the audience might understand it or, or take it in, right? Because yeah, if I had my own personal cut, it'd be like, of my past short film, it would have been like fucking 30 minutes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. If, yeah. It, if that, it was for myself. Um, and I so. think insecurity helps. Like I, uh, I did an essay, a recorded audio essay about self-doubt. And I feel like in a way, being super doubtful of my work helps because if I was just super arrogant, I would have created something that's really crappy, put it out there, and people would have been like, okay, I guess it's okay. You know, and I would never right. have gotten to this point because I never would have been like, dude, can you just read this for me? Like, bother all my friends <laughs> to try to see, like, what's working and what isn't working. Because mm-hmm. I always doubt what is working and what's not. Like, because I know, I know what I'm trying to do, but you're so in your own work. Like, you're probably so in your own film that you have all these ideas and you have knowledge that obviously an audience member doesn't have. But you forget that in the moment. No, exactly. Nothing's more valuable than a pair of fresh eyes, right? Even even like eyes that readers that might not even be familiar with the with the format and whatnot, um, it's valuable to get that range because you know you want it to be to be accessible enough. I mean, it depends on what you're trying to make. If you don't give a yeah. shit about you yeah. know the lay the lay person, if they're not exactly a cinephile, then okay, sure, that's your prerogative. But I ideally would, especially with early projects, want to make. Um, films that appeal on a wider scale at least i think you have to to be honest man i I think you have to have the way i've been noticing it is that you have to have an incredibly unique style but one that is not so unique that it's visionary when you start off because if it's too visionary then like it doesn't get that virality and stuff like that and you can't build an audience enough to prove to you know producers and stuff like that that you that you can make a movie that's worth you know getting that's gonna fill seats because i think these days like it's all about like your ability to fill seats like even fucking there's so much competition content out there that even like producers and like big shots are like okay well do you have someone behind you and like if you're a huge self-help guru that you're gonna easily get green lighted because it's like even if it's a crappy movie you're gonna get like half a million people to watch it you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so which i don't know if that's fortunate or unfortunate but 
I feel like that's more the, the way of the world these days. The good content doesn't necessarily rise to the top. No, exactly. I feel like where the virality um, sort of principle goes awry is, is in YouTube. Um, I visited the YouTube studios over LA. Um, are you original? I mean, are you uh, familiar with the YouTube originals and YouTube Red and whatnot? Yeah, yeah. Um, what are, what are your thoughts on the kind of content they're putting out there? Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's working. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, the that's very the, that's the yeah. nicest way of putting it. I guess. Yeah, the very model itself, the the idea of like people who are who are used to a free service, and all of a sudden they yes and the pay for what is like slightly more premium content is sort of absurd already. Yeah. But, oh man, like when I was visiting that studio um, and I talked to like some pretty big people there and and it's just, um, they had someone who I think was the head of YouTube. I'm looking it up actually. Uh, YouTube studios. um, And I think she was part of Lifetime Network. Um, What was, oh God damn. It wasn't Lifetime. It was, but uh, well, uh, one of the like financial heads, producing heads of, of um, YouTube right now, um, it, it might be like chief creative content person. Um, used to do work on either like a network such as Lifetime Network or MTV or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, MTV would make sense because it's verging on a very much skewing towards a younger demographic. But right. um, talking about how they, it's just. They're taking already established YouTube people um, and in further inflating their sort of budgets and production value, right? Right. And then when you think about, okay, who are the most successful YouTubers right now? we got, like, what, PewDiePie, um, Wang Fu, for instance. Uh, no, not to knock on Wang Fu. I think, I think they make, like, in terms of production value and, and I think polish uh, right. very watchable films. Um, and, and, you know, when I was younger, it definitely struck a chord, their content. But... As, as a whole, it seems some of the most populist, uh, <laughs> populist skewing kind of content I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Um, very accessible, very dumbed down, and not even, I don't know, it's... I agree, dude. I agree totally. Oh, it, it's a sort of content, yeah, like that's sort of, it, it is, is supposed to cater, I mean, BuzzFeed is a good example of that too, right? That's catering to such a large mass of people that it loses any sense of, of of any spark of creativity or any, any sense yeah. of edge to it um and it does seem dumb <laughs> i don't know like without trying to sound too pretentious in any way which i, I you know also let me know if i do uh, i i that's never my intention well I, I don't think i don't think that's pretend that's pretentious necessarily but i think i mean we could probably talk about this forever but i think it's a problem of a later stage company or a later stage person right when they're big enough to make those calls um i think that's that's when it matters but the problem for me has always been like let's say do you know tim ferris is i don't know he's like this big it's kind of for i kind of took many of his ideas for a podcast and and um i like his ideas a lot so um i took from him and a bunch of other people to make this and make this um brand and stuff like that but basically he what he is is he's this huge guy he's like there's something called the Tim Ferriss effect, which is kind of like what the Oprah effect used to be, mm-hmm. is that if he like says like, um, embrace your lazy is a great podcast, I'll get a shit ton of people coming to my podcast, like my servers will be down, like that he has that much power. Wow. But the problem is if you have that big of an audience, you have to always and it's very fascinating because you always have to cater to that audience. So 
you have to figure out ways. He has to figure out ways of pushing the boundary, still making something that's really unique and creative and the things that are in the beginning got him where he is, but mm-hmm. at the same time, not alienating too many people. And I think that's a super, like that's a surprisingly hard balance, right? Like for, right. for Buzzfeed or for Wong Fu, like I think the same thing, they just, you know, they were good in the beginning. I think in the beginning, Wong Fu made stuff that was actually different than right. other people it wasn't super different but like their take on it and the asian american take and all those things were very unique at the time when you and me watched it which mm-hmm. is why we you know related to it but it worked so they kept on doing it and the problem is if you do that too much you start to get the people who aren't a fan of your experimentation they're a fan of just that same content over and over again That's exactly so it's i mean it's it's always tough they always say that about artists right like i wish Kanye made uh, the music like his first three albums, but like in a way, you can't really expect him to. Like he shouldn't. Like I wouldn't like him if he kept stayed stagnant. Oh yeah, he's he's. I mean, remained interesting this entire time because he's been so. I mean, so fucking wild, really. Yeah, he's been incredibly controversial. He's a crazy uh, guy. Yeah, and I. I mean, I love Kanye, and I mean, I mean, what's been consistent is is I think what still makes his art great. Within like it was just great production value. Like he, he's. His production is just off the off the chain already, right? Yeah, um, yeah I'm just a spectacular producer. Yeah, I'm just, I'm looking at these YouTube original movies. I just oh, I look at the posters and I just think like this is. Hold on. What what is it called? What is it called? Oh, the. Let's see what movies are they. Like there's the. A- the thinning, is which is looks like any other young adult, it's just oh. The thinning. It's just what YouTube does, which is great. I think is like a liberation of the artists. Like you don't have to answer to anybody. You know, we're gonna give you right. a bunch of money. We're gonna give you all the studios to make anything you want. But I, I want them to be doing that to other people, <laughs> for yeah. other people. You know, and and that that's sort of a really main thing to say because i think these people work very hard um they deserve all the success they're getting i think because i mean of course they found that audience and that's the audience is supporting them right yeah and if they so. get the views you know you can't really complain but i i understand where you're coming from i really yeah. do i think um it's one of those i mean the good thing though is these days you know i was watching um, a documentary on netflix and you know in the past there used to be only three networks for television and if you created a show, everybody was watching because there was nothing else. You know, there's no, uh, there was only books and TV. Like those are two things you did. And who, like, you know, nobody reads books. So everybody was <laughs> watching TV. Unfortunately, nobody, I love books, but you know, most people don't read books. So they wa- all, like were watching the same shows. They So they had to basically make the show so kind of cliche and boiled down and populist that like it didn't really mean much. But the yeah. cool thing now is that we have like all the gatekeepers are gone. So if you create a set of content that is like really, really unique and only let's say, and this only like 2000 people like it, like granted for, for me, that's a lot of people, 2000 people liking my content, but in the grand scheme of things, that's nothing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But even if 2000, 3000 people liked it, you can like get a lot. You can actually probably make a living if you're smart enough in terms of your business model with that content which is like super cool and super amazing it could be that niche and it could still work right right so i mean yeah i'm just speaking for a matter of like a different kind of taste you know um and i i'm i'm very happy for i mean like that that kind of segment is thriving because it by principle it is allowing for 
uh, no names just pop up and make the, make what they want to do like, make what they want to make sorry and uh, succeed and that's that's really like kind of the advantage of, of living in this kind of world these days that's the American dream yeah actually <laughs> yeah I don't I don't know like when I when I'm like trying to figure out um, how to make all these things work like I the first thing I want to do is definitely definitely build an audience because I think that's probably the most important precursor to yeah. creating the type of things I want. So that is um, really important. I interviewed a guy who uh, worked with Nick Cannon. And, oh do you wow! Know Nick Cannon, he's like yeah. A, yeah. Wait, Mariah Carey's uh, husband, right? Yeah. So he has like yeah. a bunch <laughs> of different things. He directed his first movie, and my friend basically is a Hollywood story. Like he. Um, saw my friend and my friend was just like dancing on the streets of LA trying to like get ready for this role. So he was literally just like getting ready for the role, getting all in, playing music super loud and just like going crazy for whatever that role was. But so Nick Cannon just like drove up right next to him and said, Hey, do you want to be in my movie? Oh my my friend, my friend was like, I don't Hell know this yeah. guy. He was like, sure. <laughs> like, he's like, sure, I'll take your card. He's like, I thought this guy was like some student filmmaker, some MFA student or something like that. And he looks him up. He's like, this Nick Cannon, like, this guy's huge. So, <laughs> but when Nick Cannon apparently taught him, the, the biggest lesson he taught him is that your audience these days is hugely important. And it's not enough to create good content because if you're creating good content to no one, that's not useful. So, I think it's, I think it's a little bit unfortunate, but I think marketing is incredibly marketing, and your business model is incredibly important. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, part of creating your art these days, like that's just something you need to know. Which is, I guess, your consulting and stuff like that will be helpful. Um, I, I hope so. <laughs> then, oh Jesus! Hopefully, you get like an inside scoop into how uh, how these things work. Yeah, and I did work at an ad, ad, ad agency for a summer. Um, oh nice oh so, i didn't know that yeah no I, that was uh, my summer internship uh this past summer so oh that's awesome mm, yeah no, why, why an ad agency uh i well it was a mix of the creative and sort of the statistics i mean um i i did a lot of psychology research which um was more statistic less creative i'd say mm. um the creativity came into um sort of how you thought about concepts and how you want to test for them but um i wanted to get into the copywriting and how to conceive of sort of marketing campaigns and and their sort of forward drive like what you're going to appeal to in an audience what kind of insights you're going to use so i worked from a strategy um on a strategy team which is basically like an in-house consultant for a um advertising firm and so what they do is sort of take a project from the beginning to the end um i mean i'm not actually writing explicit copywriting uh or or designing the specific um sort of like uh, what is it? The poster board or, or, or um, TV ad, you know, that that's that's left to the creatives. But um, as a strategist, I'm doing the research required to figure out what insights we're going to hone in on. For instance, what kind of who is our audience? Uh, what's going to appeal to them most? What kind of what type of tone should we take for their message? And then sort of relay that to the creatives to um, eventually create that message itself, um, but direct it. So it's basically a conceptual um, strategist for an advertising campaign. And Dude, that's, long that's short. super interesting. That's like um, what? That's like one of my new things that I'm looking into. Because like, like I, you probably guessed, I've been really into kind of marketing or copywriting and ads and stuff like that. Because mm-hmm. I really want to figure out how I can 
take anybody. Like, let's say I really like your films, Richard, and I want to I want to be able to be the type of person who could be a marketing consultant and take your work and from maybe 100, 200, 300 people watching it to a couple thousand. Like, how do you take that? You know, how, how do you make that leap? Because I think the first hundred is not that hard. Right, the first hundred yeah. or two hundred, it's like it's kind family. of friends and friends, network, yeah. <laughs> and family, and all that stuff. But that that second bump is hard because once you make like I don't know a certain number, four or five k, there's a different. You're in different league because you have a different sort of momentum and different type of audience base that you can you know build on that. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 just really interesting to me because obviously eventually like you know like like I keep saying I want to make movies and write books and stuff like that. So I need to know how to actually um, get eyeballs. So oh, that's, definitely. that's really cool. What, if you had to like give like a couple, that's probably a hard question, but if you had to give a couple takeaways from what you learned that summer, like what would those takeaways be? Uh, so I, I think it's interesting because um, there are some frameworks that, you know, often are tacky used in a lot of, business settings, a lot of corporate settings, uh, whatever office you might end up working in if you if you choose, ever so choose. Um, there'll be some frameworks that like the company will try to instill upon you that you got to think about it in terms of A, B, and C. Um, but the most important thing, I think, is to whenever a client or, or whoever comes up to you presents you with a challenge or a problem that they want to solve, which is at the, the, the core of consulting, right? And in this case, it was um, a client that was a head of a sports, the governing body for sport at you know USA uh, fr- like Ultimate Frisbee. Um, they had a sort of popularity issue, right? And so we were going to solve that problem for them, right? Or in any way we could. And it was to really never forget what, number one, what the core challenge was. Because sometimes you might go end up doing a bunch of research and end up forgetting what kind of problem you're actually going to solve. You know, mm. and then that that could actually is seen in the small scale when you're in a consulting interview, you're doing a case interview, and you answer, you end up, you spend a bunch of time answering, asking questions, and end up forgetting what the question was asked. So you end up answering the wrong question. You fail the consulting interview, right? Right. Because um, you you never want to end up doing a bunch of work and putting putting together a solution that ends up solving the wrong question. Uh, two. It's making sure that there's a logical sort of breadcrumb shell between whatever insights you come up in your research. For instance, um, this idea that through our research, we found that people were actually afraid of throwing a, a frisbee uh, because, you know, it, it's sort of an intuitive idea. But the there are quantifiable facts, I mean, quantifiable numbers to back up the idea that uh, more people are familiar with throwing a ball and not throwing a frisbee. Right. So um, there needs to be a clear breadcrumb shell between that and the sort of actions you want to take from the inside, right? And that action could be, for instance, then we should instill a program that um, familiarizes more people with the Frisbee at the park on every Sunday. That's just a bad example, but that's an example of how to best solve that problem through this insight you just had, right? Um, so it won't make any sense if, say, I said like, oh, what if um, we just put more pictures of Frisbees around so people become more familiar with the Frisbee? Um, and that actually isn't solving our problem because the, the initial insight was that, um, people were afraid of throwing the Frisbee. They didn't feel confident enough in their ability. Not that they were unfamiliar with the image of the Frisbee. So the solution did not actually solve the problem. It was not actually in line with the insight you just came up with. So, um, to sum up the first two points I was trying to make, sorry, that was very long winded. 
one, never lose sight of the challenge you're answering. And two, make sure that there's a very clear breadcrumb trail between your insight and your solution. Because when you're thinking of everything in your creative process, that tends to get lost in the mix. Um, and that was just, that was all like inscribed in like a business framework kind of thing. And just having those frameworks out there and putting them in labels seems kind of like excessive, but it actually helps you organize your thoughts when you're so, um, your mind's all bulked up by everything else. So, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And I think a lot of artists or creative people have an aversion to numbers, but I'm sure that, you know, part of your work or part of what happens at this ad agency is there are a lot of metrics and quantifiable things that go into testing these things, right? Like Definitely. testing whether or not this um, insight, the action you took based on the insight was actually useful. Like, did it, did it help? Like did, you know, those sorts of things I think, you know, are surprisingly important. Like uh, as a, maybe I'm tuning my own horn, but like as a stats major, I, I, you know, or a stats minor, I've realized those things are really important. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And then, um, whenever any, campaign is put into place there the website metrics are, are very important because they, they do teach you uh, what worked and what didn't right and, and that's um that, that's why big data has been such a huge thing in, in every field really so you have very marketable skills there <laughs> yeah i mean hopefully like you know that's the the goal is to have have a good job and then slowly transition into um learning more and more things so how, how have the uh, stats been on the on the podcast and everything like what, what kind of viewership are we seeing so basically this is kind of like what i'm doing is i'm recording all these interviews and recording all the audio essays and then i'm gonna do release them three at a time each week so nice. i actually haven't there is no podcast up on itunes or anything like that yet um i kind of want to do a netflix style of things um and i've been kind of trying to as much as possible get uh, feedback mostly mostly on the audio essays but get feedback so it's not like i'm releasing eight eight to ten weeks of things that aren't going to be useful to people right no it's a no it's a, it's a, like a season kind of thing right like you're yeah. you're off season now you're building everything and one season comes in it's got scheduled like a, like a nice tiered release that's nice exactly yeah and like one of my it's and like i said it's kind of like this embrace your lazy thing is kind of like a boot camp for exploring all the things that have been issues or problems um in terms of motivating myself or creating habits that are important or you know executing like this the biggest thing that helped was i actually started executing on stuff um after kind of teaching my myself this type of stuff so um uh, one of the things that i always say is you got to do things wherein doing the thing intrinsically is incredibly rewarding to you Mm -hmm. and there are many rewarding points things you can get rewards from that doesn't have to do necessarily with the success of the metrics obviously the end goal is always you know get this to as many ears as you can um, have people really enjoy the content right because i really want to produce something that people are going to say hey this was really useful like thanks for creating this like that's the end goal um but at the end of the day even if nobody listens to it like i you know all these conversations are a lot of fun i get to learn from all these people and my writing's gotten better my interviewing skills have gotten better so it's there's a lot there that isn't necessarily dependent on a lot of people listening to it i don't know for sure i can totally see that and so it's called embrace your lazy because um is it more because you want people to find this, they come across something called Embrace Your Lazy and it's supposed to be the content they find can help them too in, in their sort of 
um, like creative process. They they, they want to you know become motivated or inspired to find ways to help them with the process. Is that sort of what this podcast? Yeah. Is for? So basically, what embrace your lazy is is um, the genesis for it was I honestly just realized that I'm not a hardworking person, <laughs> so I should <laughs> give up on the I should give up on the idea that hard work by itself solves everything. Um, and what I mean by that is it's somewhat of a kind of nuanced definition of what lazy means. But basically the point was I should create systems that guarantee my success. I should embrace the fact that I'm not my new year, my Jan first self. I'm not the person who's going to be incredibly motivated to, you know, create a podcast or write a book in the next couple months. I have to realize that there are going to be days that suck. The fact that I'm a human person who's not perfect, that I am very lazy. That human beings in general are lazy. So how do you create systems that can get you to your perfect self without exerting a lot of willpower and hard work? And if you truly do the things that are intrinsically rewarding to you and create the systems that make those dreams a reality, then it won't feel like work it'll feel like you're being lazy. And just like in a mm-hmm. similar way, like creating this podcast, there's no doubt in a way, it's a lot of hard work, but I'm enjoying the experience so much. And like, I've, you know, put it, I've made it such a habit that if I don't do it one day, I feel like I'm missing out on something. It's like when you haven't brushed your teeth that night, like that's how I kind of feel when I haven't written for a day. So that's kind of, that's kind of what I'm doing. And then these interviews are probing people that I think are going to be successful in 10 to 15 years and trying to get them on the cusp of success because they're closer to the ground, right? They can talk about how they got their first 100 viewers or how they made their first short film or how they wrote their first book rather than when you're just really successful and multi, multi-millionaire, billionaire or create 20 films. You don't remember what it was like creating that first one. And for me and for other people, I feel like there's no content out there that helps you make that first movie. You know what I mean? Because Mm -hmm. all the books are from experts, which makes sense. But also, I think the people I'm going to be interviewing are going to be experts in 15 years. So this is very valuable advice. And it's kind of nice to hear other people um, going through the same struggles you are, too. There's like a little bit of solidarity in that because it looks from 20 years in the future when you see someone like Martin Scorsese, for example, you just feel like, okay, like, you know, that guy always had it. But you never know. Like, you know, when he was 20, maybe he was going through the same struggles and self-doubt and trying to figure out how he can create systems that make him create movies. You know, you never know that. So, yeah. I mean, someone was telling me Martin Scorsese was like watching like four or five movies a day or something like that at one point. Like, I can believe that. Yeah, no, <laughs> I can definitely believe that. But no, I, I, I love that. I love that explanation of, I mean, Embrace Your Lazy makes a lot more sense to me now. And um, I think that's a definitely a good perspective to view um, sort of how to achieve your goals without actually, I mean, it, it's again, like putting your energy in the right place. First of all, you need to scratch your own itch and be unique. You have to be different enough to be noticed, but formulaic enough that people can understand it and get super into it. As an artist, you need to learn to start building your audience because that is what makes you more popular and viral. There are, no go- there are no gatekeepers, which is amazing, but it's also a burden in many ways because you are much more dependent on your success. You can go straight to your consumers, and the way to do that is to start creating lazy versions of the things that you hope to create 10, 15 years from now. Instead of making a feature, make a short film or a music video. 
Start writing short stories instead of your novel and get quick feedback to make your product better at the same time. Build trust with the audience so that you have a strong, loyal audience that is really, really into your work. If you want to learn how to build these types of lazy habits or other common ones such as meditation and exercising, check out my free class on creating lazy habits that stick at EmbraceYourLazy.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.